15 Christian leaders in those days. Today we're moving into the 4th and even 5th century, which many have considered to be the golden age of theological work in the early church. Recall, what was the great change that took place at the beginning of the 4th century, the early 300s, that enabled this theological flowering? Big political change. Constantine came to power and officially legalized Christianity as a religion in the empire and even promoted it. So this is why we have this, like I say, theological flowering. So many of the early church's most important and most recognizable names come from these last two centuries, the fourth and the fifth. And so you've actually heard me mention a number of these names in this course. And even in sermons or Christian books that you read, you'll see these names, Athanasius, John Chrysostom, Jerome, Ambrose, and Augustine, Augustine being the main one. I want you to meet these men. I want you to be able to appreciate, at least to some small degree, their far-reaching legacies. And because these men are so significant, I'm slowing down the pace of the course just a little bit, spending more time with these men than those that we've met previously. We're actually just going to look at three of these 4th and 5th century fathers today, this is Lesson 10 on Athanasius, Chrysostom, and Jerome. Next week, we'll meet the other two men, Ambrose and Augustine. And there were, of course, other notable persons, great teachers and leaders in this period, but these five are some of the most important writers, preachers, scholars of the early church. Not perfect, just like us, yet nonetheless useful, happy instruments of our Lord in this, in this period of time. Now, as previously, I plan to introduce you to these men by, and give you their biographies and summarize some of their significant contributions to the church, but I also really want these brothers to speak themselves to you, so we'll be highlighting some of their writings, sampling them. We're going to start today by meeting someone that we've kind of met a little bit already, but let's hear more about him, Athanasius. Athanasius, the Trinity Defender. Uh, we met him when we were talking about the seven ecumenical councils because he played an important role in a certain council. Which council was that? The Council of Nicaea in 325. He was a leading opponent of Arianism. What is Arianism again? Say that. That's right. And not a trinity because who specifically is not the eternal God? Jesus. Jesus is a created being in Arian's point of view, Arius's point of view, and this was Arianism. And I'm not going to go over all the material related to Nicaea and Arianism again, but I do want to tell you more about this faithful brother. So we don't know too much about Athanasius' early life, but since he later spoke and wrote in Coptic, he was probably born in Egypt to a poor family, probably in or near Alexandria. Some of his later Arian opponents, pejoratively, pejoratively referred to him as the Black Dwarf, suggesting that he was short and dark-skinned. His friend Gregory of Nazianzus described him as a small, thin man with a beautiful face, piercing eyes, and a mysterious aura of power that affected even his enemies. Athanasius may have grown up visiting or even serving some of the desert monks who lived near Alexandria, as he would later in his life find many allies among those monks, adopt a similar lifestyle, 
and even hide out with them in the wilderness. What we do know with more certainty is that Athanasius became the senior deacon of the church in Alexandria, secretary to the city's bishop, Alexander, and then later bishops himself. You remember, I already mentioned, Athanasius soon found himself fighting the Arian heresy, even speaking on the subject at the Council of Nicaea in 325. It was made bishop despite his protests, and this is kind of a theme in the early church, People get made bishops, and they don't want to be bishops. They're like, no, but you really deserve the job. You would be great in this role. And they're like, no, I don't want to do it. Too much responsibility. But then they take it, and they're like, okay, I'll serve the Lord this way. And that was true of Athanasius. Didn't want to become bishop, but Alexander on his deathbed is like, let's make Athanasius bishop. And he's like, oh, man, I've got to do it now. He was elected the next bishop of Alexandria on the old bishop's recommendation. Now, because Constantine was later persuaded to side with the Arians against those who supported the Nicene Confession, and because many of Constantine's successors were also Arian, Athanasius soon found himself, and frequently found himself, at odds with the governing authorities. As I mentioned to you previously, Athanasius was exiled multiple times, actually five times, from his church in Alexandria once to Trier in Germany, once to Rome, twice to the deserts of Egypt, which is more flight than exile, and then once to a house or cemetery outside Alexandria. Keeps getting kicked out of his church. But despite how much pressure came from the emperors for him just to bow to Arianism, Athanasius did not give in. He never stopped writing against it, continued to preach Christ as both man and God. Because for Athanasius... Arianism didn't just upend a true understanding of the nature of Christ, which is fundamental in and of itself, but it really overturned the whole basis for Christian hope and salvation. If Jesus is not God, then our gospel is not real. It's not complete. Listen to two excerpts from Athanasius' most famous work on the incarnation of the Word. And I take this via Needham's book, 2,000 Years in Christ's Power, but this work is available online. Here's what Athanasius writes. No one else but the Savior, who in the beginning made everything out of nothing, could bring what had been corrupted into a state free from corruption. No one else but the image of the Father could recreate human beings in God's image. No one else but our Lord Jesus Christ, who is life itself, could give immortality to mortal humans. No one else but the Logos, who imparts order to everything and is the one true and only begotten Son of the Father, could teach us about the Father and destroy idolatry. So what is Athanasius' basic argument here? Well, Jesus is God, but what does that enable him to do? Say that again, Danny. Well, yeah, that's one way he describes it. All the things that the Bible says Jesus has accomplished for his people, showing the Father, giving them new life, um, making them into the image of God, they can't happen unless Jesus is actually God himself. And then from another section of the work, Athanasius adds, He, that's Jesus, became human that we might become divine. He revealed himself in a body, that we might see the invisible Father. He suffered our insults so that we might inherit immortality. Now, that beginning phrase there might make you a little uncomfortable. He became human so that we might become divine, but 
This is just an allusion from Athanasius to 2 Peter 1.4, which, you know, Pastor Bobby has treated that passage several times, just to remind you of it. 2 Peter 1.4 says, For by these, um, talking about uh, the knowledge of Christ, uh, revealing the power of Christ, He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. In that original passage, Peter didn't teach that Christians became gods or even became part of God, but that Christ, through Christ, we are sanctified to become like God in character, and we become fellow heirs with God, that is, God the Son, in his glorious kingdom. So we become partakers of the divine nature, which is kind of a shocking statement in and of itself. Understood correctly, that is, that is not error. And this is actually one of Arius Athanasius' famous favorite, sorry, let me slow down a little bit. This is one of Athanasius' favorite arguments against the Arians. Only someone who is himself divine could enable those who are in union with him to be participants in the divine nature. He's created being, he can't do what 2 Peter 1.4 says. He can't enable that. And by the way, this terminology of Christians becoming divine, it is prevalent in the Greek Orthodox Church today, in their doctrine which they call deification or theosis. It's a little weird the way that they explain it, and it definitely trends towards mysticism and a works-oriented salvation, but the origin of the idea is scriptural, and they would even look back to people like Athanasius for um, extra support. There is a, a sense in which Christians do participate in the divine nature and become like God. But anyways, you see that Athanasius was a zealous defender of the truth, and particularly the Trinity. But he was also gifted in discernment. Knowing that there was a difference between a true departure of salvation doctrine and just a small error or a misunderstanding. One of Athanasius' greatest contributions in the fight against Arianism is that he helped bring together the strict Nicenes with the more moderate Nicenes. And both of these groups had been suspicious of one another, and the Arians had been picking them apart. This is something that Athanasius said, calling for those who were in his own group, the strict Nicenes, to listen to. Athanasius says, Those who accept the creed of Nicaea, but have doubts about the word homoousios, and we talked about that before, right? This means of the same substance, but there are a large group of Christians both at Nicaea and after Nicaea, who were uncomfortable with this term because it sounded like Sabellianism. You're trying to make the Father and the Son absolutely the same, no difference in person. There are some people uncomfortable with that. So he's telling his fellow strict Nicenes, these who, are on, who have doubts about the word must not be classed as enemies. Let us discuss the issue with them as brothers with brothers. They mean the same thing we mean. All we are arguing about is the use of a word. Now, this is a wise man, and his efforts did much to bring together those two groups and unite against Arianism. I do love Athanasius as a zealous defender of the truth, but also a reasonable conciliator among the brethren. He could also be quite clever and even humorous. There's a story told about Athanasius that one time when he's fleeing from Roman authorities by boat up the Nile River in the dark, he rounded a bend and then suddenly turned around and approached the pursuing boat. 
Supposing that he was actually a different boat than the one they were pursuing, the pursuers called out to him in the dim light, Have you seen Athanasius? He replied, Yes, you are very close to him. He's just a little ahead of you. Of course, then he passes by, and he's able to escape safely. Well, as I mentioned uh, in a previous class, Athanasius didn't live long enough to see Arianism totally defeated. But he believed the day of its defeat would come, and he kept doing his part. Enjoying a few years of ministry in Alexandria, after his last exile, Athanasius died peacefully in his bed. We have a number of his works surviving today, I think maybe 20 or more, but some of his most famous include On the Incarnation of the Word, which I quoted to you, Orations Against the Arians, and another work from later in his life, The Life of Anthony. And this was an important work. It was a biography of one desert monk named Anthony, now known today as Anthony the Great, whom Athanasius greatly admired and was like, everybody needs to know about this guy. This work became the ancient equivalent of a bestseller, and it ended up drawing a lot of people to monasticism. They're like, the monastic life seems pretty good, and it would be influential in both the eastern and the western halves of the empire. So when you think about Athanasius and his legacy, think of him as that faithful Trinity defender who not only preached the truth, but lived a holy and perseverant life on top of it. Thank the Lord for Athanasius. Now, he's one of my favorites, but the next church father I want to introduce you to is another one of my favorites, and that man is John Chrysostom. John Chrysostom, the expositor. Now, don't get confused about that name. Like Justin Martyr, the second part of John's name is not actually his name. It's a title. It's a Greek phrase, Chrysostomos. Does anybody know what that means? Good guess, not Christ-like. Chrysos, or I think it's, yeah, Chrysos means gold, and stomos means mouth. So this is John the golden-mouthed. And why would he be given that title? Because he was the most eloquent and eminent preacher of his period, notable for his clear expository style. He was actually probably the most important, important church father in the East during his lifetime. He had that much impact. Who was John? Well, John was born in Antioch in Syria to parents of some means, middle or upper class, in 347. He became a Christian around age 20, studied rhetoric under a pagan teacher, and then went on to study theology at the school, at the Christian school at Antioch. And if you remember, what kind of interpretation of the Bible does Antioch favor? Well, certainly they'll be using Greek. If we have allegorical and literal, which one does Antioch prefer? Literal, yes. Allegorical interpretation centers where? Alexandria, that's right. Remember, these two schools kind of rival each other. So he's studying in Antioch. And he also began to live a very ascetic, self-denying lifestyle, even living as a hermit for some time before becoming a deacon and then a priest at Antioch. Remember, priest just means presbyter, elder. He was an extremely popular preacher at Antioch. His homilies or sermons were clear and practical expositions of the Bible with an emphasis on holy living as a result of a heart that loves God. He also continually spoke against the increasing worldliness that existed in the church 
both among lay people and the clergy. And why would this be an increasing problem in the 4th and 5th centuries? That's right. Remember that blessing, you are officially tolerated, no persecution anymore. Well, it's also a curse in some ways because it brings nominal Christianity into the church. People who want Christianity just for the social and economic benefits or whatever that it gives them. So Chrysostom preaches against this encroaching worldliness. I served as a preacher 12 years in Antioch, but then was suddenly given the bishopric of Constantinople which is an extremely prestigious post because that's the capital. That's the capital of the empire. After the previous patriarch's death, the clergy in Constantinople elected John without consulting him. And he traveled to Constantinople against his will, there it is again, to take the position. Really don't want to do this. Apparently he was so popular in Antioch that he had to leave secretly or else it might have caused a great outcry among the people. Now, John became popular in Constantinople just as he did in Antioch, but that was with the common people. He had a much chillier reception among Constantinople's elite, <clears throat> who were often cut by John's words against worldliness and hypocrisy. John also refused to continue the practices of Constantinople's previous patriarchs, such as hosting social gatherings for aristocrats or monetarily supporting clergy at Constantinople who had left their regional posts. So you had these clergy who were supposed to be serving in other areas, but they just stayed in Constantinople and they expected to still be supported in their positions. He's like, I'm not going to do that. And among those who became John's enemies was the Eastern Empress herself, named Aelia Eudoxia, whom John characterized as extremely vain. And no doubt she was. As her opposition to him increased, he compared her to Herodias from the Bible, the New Testament woman who clamored for the head of John the Baptist. Well, like Herodias, Eudoxia was determined to have her way, and she united with John's clerical opponents and had him deposed as Bishop of Constantinople and exiled. Sound familiar? But these men of conviction, they don't stop when you put them in exile. Just like Athanasius, John continued to write back to Constantinople from his exile. And that got him exiled even further, <laughs> even outside the empire, eventually. It was on his way to his last exile in Abkhazia, on the eastern side of the Black Sea, that John died. His tomb is actually still there today, though his earthly remains were taken back to Constantinople soon after his death. His last words are said to have been, Doxa Tatheo Panton Henneken. Glory be to God in all things. So that's a summary of John's life. Let's hear more from Chrysostom himself. As I said, Chrysostom was a notable verse by verse expositor. He wasn't the only expositional or preacher of this period or the time before, but he was the most prominent. And just so we're all clear, what is expository preaching? It often is verse by verse, though it doesn't always have to be. Yeah, Mark? A redundant term? Yes, in many ways it is a redundant term. Expository just means explaining. And really all preaching is supposed to be that. You're explaining the Bible and you're applying it to the lives of your people, to the lives of those who hear you. It's another way to describe it. It is explanation by exegesis. 
Exegesis is the process of interpretation, properly giving attention to the historical, literary, and grammatical context of a passage of the Bible. You want to know what the Bible means when it says something and how we know it means what it means. Expository preaching seeks to explain by proper hermeneutics the biblical author's originally intended meaning. And really, it's, it's what proper preaching is. And so, yes, in some ways, expository preaching is a redundant term. That's what we seek to practice here, and it's what John also practiced. Now, listen to John himself talk about exposition. This comes from his work Against Marcionists and Manichaeans. For we ought to unlock the passage by first giving a clear interpretation of the words. What then does the saying mean? We must not attend the words merely, but turn our attention to the sense and learn the aim of the speaker and the cause and the occasion. And by putting all these things together, turn out the hidden meaning. Now, when he says hidden meaning there, he doesn't mean a secret symbolic meaning, but the author's original intent. And let's hear an example of John's exposition. Let me give you something from one of his sermons or homilies. This is from Matthew 1. You can actually turn there yourself if you like. Very beginning of Matthew. This is a sermon he preached starting on Matthew 1.3, which if you know, is the genealogical section of Matthew. Uh, what kind of sermon can you get from the genealogies? Well, let's hear John. The text is, or at least part of the text, and Judas begat Pharaoh and Zerah of Tamar. So Judas actually being Judah, that's just another way of translating the name. Who, real quick, who was Tamar? Not Jacob's wife, but what were you saying, Tina? Yes, that's right. She had, I think, actually two children. But yeah, she slept with her father-in-law because he wasn't giving up his surviving son to be her husband, and uh, he didn't realize it because she was dressed as a prostitute. But she was his daughter-in-law, had twins, and this was kind of a... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? This is, a, this is not a, a, a proud moment in the history of the patriarchs. But it's recorded in this genealogy, and here's what John says about it. What dost thou, O man, putting us in remembrance of a history that contains an unlawful intercourse? But why is this said? Since if we were recounting the race of, mere, of a mere man, one might naturally have been silent touching these things. But if of God incarnate, so far from being silent, one ought to make a glory of them, showing forth his tender care and his power. Yea, it was for this cause he came, not to escape our disgraces, but to bear them away. Therefore, as he is the more admired, and that he not only died, but was even crucified, though the thing be appropriate, denigrating, yet the more appropriate, the more doth it show him full of love to man. So likewise may we speak touching his birth. It's not only because he took flesh upon him and became man that we justly stand amazed at him, but because he vouchsafed to have, such, to have also such kinsfolk, being in no respect ashamed of our evils. And this he was proclaiming from the very beginning of his birth, that he is ashamed of none of those things that belong to us, while he teaches us also hereby never to hide our face at our forefathers' wickedness, but to seek after one thing alone, even virtue. 
for such a man, though we have an alien for his ancestor, though we have a mother who is a prostitute, or what you will, can take no hurt thereby. For if the whoremonger, or a moral man, himself, being changed, is nothing disgraced by his former life, much more will the wickedness of his ancestry have no power to bring to shame him that is sprung of a harlot or an adulteress, if he be virtuous. But he, Christ, did these things not only to instruct us, but also to bring down the haughtiness of the Jews. For since they, negligent about virtue in their own souls, were parading the name of Abraham, thinking that they had a plea for their forefather's virtue. He shows in the very beginning that it is not in these things men ought to glory, but in their own good deeds. Now, pause real quick there. Good deeds? Wait, is John promoting works-based salvation? One more paragraph. Besides this, he is establishing another point also, to show that all are under sin, even their forefathers themselves. At least their patriarch and namesake is shown to have committed no small sin. For Tamar stands against him to accuse his whoredom. And David too had Solomon by the wife whom he corrupted. But if, the great, if by the great ones the law was not fulfilled, much more by the less. And if it was not fulfilled, all have sinned, and Christ's coming has become necessary. John says we all need Christ to save us. We can't save ourselves. Even the great, great patriarchs were great sinners, so how much more we? But God is such a God. As John points out from Matthew's original intent, God is not ashamed to call us brethren. It's even shown in the genealogy. And that's an edifying exposition, right? And many of John's homilies, like this one, are preserved. You can still benefit from this ancient brother's preaching today. It's available online. Before we leave John, one other note. At Antioch, John preached eight homilies entitled Against the Jews. And that title is a little bit misleading. It's really against Judaizing Christians, Christians who want to bring back aspects of the Old Testament law. It's written, though, in a literary form called the psagos, which literally means blame, which was a genre at the time which is very forceful and denigrating, and it was denigrating even to the Jews. Now, some say these homilies show John to be anti-Semitic. That could be true. Certainly the Christians in this period, partly due to increasing supersessionism, seeing that the church replaces Israel, God has done with that wicked people, they were tempted towards anti-Semitism, and some yielded to it. But John's blistering rhetoric may simply be due to the form of his writing rather than any prejudice against the Jews. It was his zeal against Judaizing coming through rather than just a hate for a people. No, we don't know the full situation there, but we don't necessarily have to say, yep, he was an anti-Semite. There is a similar issue that comes up with Martin Luther. I know Mark mentioned some things about that in his Sunday school lesson. When we get there, Lord willing, we will get there, I'll have more to say about the circumstances surrounding his work against the Jews and their lies. But that's it for John the Golden Mouth. Faithful preacher by expository preaching and exegesis, even as many others in this period were opting for the allegorical hermeneutic popularized by Origen. Well, the third 
church father from this period I want to introduce you to today is Jerome. We have Athanasius, the Trinity defender, Chrysostom, the expositor, and Jerome, the translator. Some of you have probably heard of this scholar before, uh, even before this course, because he is famous for one literary work, and that is the Vulgate. What is the Vulgate? It is the translation of the Bible into Latin, and it is still held up with incredible esteem in the Roman Catholic Church, even too much. But more about that in just a moment. Who was Jerome? Well, born in the Roman province of Dalmatia, which is present-day Bosnia and Herzegovina, just across from Italy, eastern side of that sea. Jerome, as a young man, went to Rome to study rhetoric and philosophy. He also lived a profligate life there, and he was soon hounded by guilt and the thought of hell. He repented. He was baptized in his late uh, and he was baptized in his late teens or early twenties. A few years later, Jerome traveled to Trier, Germany, before going on a trip with some friends through Asia Minor. But on this trip, his two friends died, and Jerome became seriously ill. This had a huge impact on Jerome. He decided as a result, to give up all secular study and instead take up the life of an ascetic and study the Bible. For a time, Jerome lived and studied in a desert near Antioch in Syria with a number of other hermits, and it is there that Jerome first began to learn Hebrew. It's not common for people, even Bible teachers, to know Hebrew at that time, but he started to learn it. He was eventually ordained a priest in Antioch, but was still committed to scholarly study rather than pastoral ministry. And by the way, if you ever look up pictures or paintings of Jerome, you often see him depicted in bright red garb, which is the clothing of what official position in the Roman Catholic Church? Cardinals, which is weird because Jerome was never a cardinal, and he never could have been a cardinal because the position of cardinal or special elector of the pope did not exist until 1059. Despite this historical fact, Jerome is almost always pictured in cardinal red. This gives me an opportunity for a side note. When I show you pictures and paintings of these various persons, obviously that is not an accurate historical representation. Uh, I think there's maybe one picture, that um, mosaic or picture, that might be connected to the person of the time. But most of these are done later, especially in the Renaissance period, and so you see these figures often papified if I can use that term. These early church fathers are pictured wearing the gaudy robes, capes, and hats of much later priests and popes. That's not what they actually look like. Just understand, that's not historically accurate. Though the imperial church in the 4th century, 5th century, we do move to more elaborate vestments in the church. They're kind of adopting the court look of the emperor. Not everybody, but you do see more of that in the church. The Catholic clergy, Roman Catholic clergy, did not have official vestments until at the earliest 1215, which would be at the Fourth Lateran Council, where clergy were given instructions as to what to wear and not, what, not to wear in their position. But anyways, that's just trying to give you some background there. I try to avoid most anachronistic depictions of these persons if I can, but I can't always, so that's just a little aside. But back to Jerome. After ordination as a priest, 
Jerome continued to travel and serve in various positions, positions, but he eventually settled down in Bethlehem, where he lived in a monastic community and wrote most of his literary works. Interesting fact, when we were in Bethlehem and we went to visit the reported site of Jesus' birth, Jerome's cell, where he stayed and worked, is said to be right next to it. And there's actually a little statue of Jerome outside of it today. Now, one source I read says that aside from Augustine, Jerome was the second most prolific writer of this period. He wrote commentaries, polemics, histories, translations of previous literary works. In his Bible interpretation, Jerome followed the School of Alexandria, which meant what kind of hermeneutic? Yeah, symbolic, allegorical, hermeneutic. Alas, didn't make him unfaithful, but not, not really doing what he ought to there. His most important work, however, would be Bible translation. While serving in Rome, the bishop of Rome asked Jerome to create a new translation of the Bible. But as Jerome began, it bothered him that nearly all the Bible translations of his time, whether written in Latin or Greek, they had Old Testaments translated not from the Hebrew, but from the Septuagint, which was written in what language? Greek. Yeah, Septuagint's Greek, and then uh, sometimes be translated into Latin. Now, if you're not familiar with the Septuagint, it is the Greek translation or a set of translations of the Old Testament books and other related books written before the time of Christ for Hellenized Jews, those Jews who had embraced Greek culture and language after the time of Alexander the Great, and they couldn't read Hebrew anymore or even Aramaic. They still needed to study the Bible, still wanted to study the Bible. And so this translation came about. The name Septuagint uh, means 70, and it refers to the legend of 70 or 72 Jewish scholars who created the work. There's like a whole story about it. Each one supposedly independently translated the books of the Bible without consulting one another. They came together, and lo and behold, all their translations were exactly the same. Like the Spirit was inspiring them to do this exact translation. It didn't actually happen, but that was the legend. Now, because it means 70, you will sometimes see the Septuagint abbreviated using what three Roman numerals? LXX. So whenever you see that, that's just the, the Septuagint. Many Old Testament quotations in the New Testament, even in our Bibles, are based off the Septuagint translation. Not all of them, but it was very commonly used in the early church. Even today, the Greek Orthodox Church has a high degree of reverence for the Septuagint. But anyways, Jerome is noticing, as he's given this task of Bible translation, that all available 4th century Bible translations of the Old Testament were based off of the Septuagint rather than the Hebrew. So the translations are based off of the translation rather than the original text. No one seemed to question this, but Jerome's like, that's not the way to do it. So he started to create a Latin Bible translation of the Old Testament that was from the original Hebrew. And actually, once people heard that this is what Jerome was doing, that he had started doing this, they actually tried to dissuade him from it, asking him, hey, why don't you trust the Septuagint's translation of the Old Testament? How could you possibly improve on the Septuagint's work? And how could you not help but put new errors into your translation to the detriment of the church? What do you think you're doing, Jerome? But Jerome persevered, and the resulting translation of the Old Testament and the New Testament and the apocryphal books, he called the Vulgate. Now, Vulgate sounds like what English word? Vulgar, which means what? 
common or dirty, right? Vulgar language, oh, it's, can't use that. Well, that's because these vulgar and vulgate, they come from the same Latin root, and it does mean common, which is actually why Jerome wrote his work and titled it thus. He wanted an accurate translation of the Bible to be available in the common language of the West, which was not Greek, but Latin, which is then ironic considering what took place throughout the centuries preceding the Reformation. The Roman Catholic Church actually came to forbid any translation of the Bible into the vulgar or common languages of the people, saying, no, you must instead use the Vulgate translation, which was actually translated to be the common language of the people. Well, Jerome's translation was a good one, though it was imperfect, as all translations are, some better than others. Nevertheless, it became the translation of the Bible used in Western Christianity for the next 1,100 years. Jerome's Vulgate. Even after vernacular versions of the Bible became more widespread after the Reformation and the days afterwards, many Protestants, certainly Catholics, but many Protestants still looked with great respect upon Jerome's Latin translation. Now, one of the significant choices in Jerome's translation of the New Testament was his choice for the Greek word metanoia, which means repentance. It's one of the words used for repentance. But what word did Jerome use for this word in his translation? Penance. Right, yeah, the Latin version of that. So similarly, metanoeo, now metanoeo, the word for repent, the verb, he translated it as do penance. This is an unfortunate word choice. Because what does do penance overemphasize about the term repentance? External works, external turning, external obedience and change. That is part of repentance, but that's not all of repentance, not even the essence of repentance. Now, perhaps Jerome had the right meaning in mind when he chose that word, but over the centuries, the Roman Catholic Church view of repentance would become almost wholly external, connected with the word penance, which is ironic because the originally translated word metanoia it actually doesn't refer to the outside, at least not directly. Metanoia means literally what? A change in mind. A change or turning in your mind, which leads to a change of action, but it is fundamentally a change in mind. So unfortunately, penance got away from that meaning. Well, Jerome continued to write and contend for the faith until his death in Bethlehem in 420. His remains, originally buried in Bethlehem, are now in Rome, though not in St. Peter's Basilica. Now I want you to hear a little bit from Jerome. First, I want to show you something kind of funny. As I said, <laughs> many at the time regarded Jerome's translation with apprehension, including Jerome's younger contemporary, Augustine. Now listen to a part of a letter that Augustine wrote to Jerome in 394, and then I will show you Jerome's response. So first, here's Augustine. For my own part, I cannot sufficiently express my wonder that anything should, at this date, be found in the Hebrew manuscripts which escaped so many translators perfectly acquainted with the language. I say nothing of the Seventy, regarding whose harmony and mind and spirit, surpassing that which is found in even one man, I dare not in any way pronounce 
a decided opinion, except that in my judgment, beyond question, very high authority must in this work of translation be conceded to them. I am more perplexed by those translators who, though enjoying the advantage of laboring after the 70 had completed their work, although well acquainted, as it is reported, with the force of Hebrew words and phrases and with Hebrew syntax, have not only failed to agree among themselves, but have left many things which, even after so long a time, still remain to be discovered and brought to light. Now these things, and he's referring to those unresolved Hebrew translation questions, were either obscure or plain. If they were obscure, it is believed that you are as likely to have been mistaken as the others. If they were plain, it is not believed that they, the 70, could possibly have been mistaken. Having stated the grounds of my perplexity, I appeal to your kindness to give me an answer regarding this matter. So Augustine is clearly questioning Jerome's translation work. And on what three grounds? Yeah, you think you can do better than the 70? Come on, these guys were great. Why else? Others have tried to translate independent of the 70, and what does Augustine say what happened? They didn't do it with success, and they didn't agree on their translation. Others have tried to do what you're trying to do, Jerome, and it didn't go well. Why do you think it's going to be different for you? And... He intimates, if there's something wrong in the Septuagint, it must be something obscure. Because if it were plain, the Septuagint would have gotten it right. And if it's obscure, you're not going to get it right. And if it's plain, you're not going to do better than them. Now, what is Jerome's response? Well, at first, I think this is hilarious, Jerome did not reply. So some years later, Augustine sent Jerome another letter with similar words and asking if Jerome's reply to his first letter had gotten lost somewhere. I'm sure he must have replied. I didn't receive it. Did it get lost? Well, finally, 10 years after the first letter was sent, Jerome sent a response. Here's an excerpt. All of the commentators who have been our predecessors in the Lord in the work of expounding the scriptures have expounded either what was obscure or what was plain. If some passages were obscure, how could you, after them, presume to discuss which they were not able to explain? If the passages were plain, it was a waste of time for you to have undertaken to treat that which could not possibly have escaped them. This syllogism applies with peculiar force to the book of Psalms, in the interpretation of which Greek commentators have written many volumes. Now I put to your wisdom to answer why you, after all the labors of so many and so competent interpreters, differ from them in your exposition of some passages. What's Jerome's point? Yeah, yeah, he's saying, you're saying that I can't do a better job than any of the translators that came before, but what about you as a preacher? Why do you keep preaching if people have preached those passages before you? You think you can do better than them? You think you're going to understand what they didn't understand? You obviously don't take their same interpretation. Sometimes your expositions are different. What gives you the gall to think that you can do that? So he's turning Augustine's objections against his translation on Augustine. Here's what he says to close the letter. In closing this letter, 
I beseech you to have some consideration for a soldier who is now old and has long retired from active service and not to force him to take the field and again expose his life to the chances of war. Do you who are young and who have been appointed to the conspicuous seat of pontifical dignity that is the bishopric, give yourself to teaching the people and enrich Rome with new stores from fertile Africa. I am contented to make but little noise in an obscure corner of a monastery with one to hear me or read to me. So Jerome goes back to what he mentioned before. Augustine, you're the young preacher. Keep preaching. That's good for you to do. I'm the old scholar. Let me do my work in peace. One other thing I want to bring up before we finish with Jerome. You may have noticed that I said earlier that Jerome included the, the Apocrypha in his Vulgate. You may ask, why did he do that? Well, let me tell you. First of all, do you remember how I told you that in the process of canonizing the New Testament, there were different works that were considered helpful, but that were ultimately rejected as inspired? So there was the Didache, or the Epistle of Barnabas, or the Shepherd of Hermas. These were considered helpful, but not inspired, not scripture. Well, the same thing apparently had happened with works related to the Old Testament. And these had actually been included in the Septuagint translation. You had apocryphal books like Judith, or 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Maccabees, or Ecclesiasticus, or the Prayer of Manasseh, or even a few chapters added to some Bible books, like the book of Daniel. These, though not considered inspired, but considered helpful, were included in the Septuagint translation of the Bible and even interspersed with the canonical books. There was no Apocrypha section in the Septuagint, but from what I understand, people recognize that there was a difference between the Apocrypha books and the canonical books. So this was the reality for the Septuagint. When Jerome decided to make his translation for the Vulgate, he really wasn't doing anything than what had been done before. He says, I'm going to include these other helpful works, even though they're not the Bible. Christians are using them. Christians have benefited from them. I'm going to include them in my translation. Except, Jerome included some explanatory preferences, prefaces to these apocryphal books, including the following. I forget which one this is in front of, but this is in his translation of the Vulgate. As then the church reads Judith, Tobit, and the books of Maccabees, but does not admit them among the canonical scriptures. So let it read these two volumes, oh, there it is, Wisdom of Solomon and Ecclesiasticus, for the edification of the people, not to give authority to doctrines of the church. Jerome wrote this in the Vulgate. Now, I know this is strange to think about, but did you know that the apocryphal books, while not recognized as canonical by Jews or Christians, until the Catholic Council of Trent in 1546 and the Greek Orthodox Synod of Jerusalem in 1672, the apocryphal books have nonetheless been paired with the biblical texts for hundreds of years. Even when Luther produced his own Bible translation in the Reformation, he retained the apocrypha. Though he did put those books into its own section and labeled them with the following title, Apocrypha, these books are not held equal to the scriptures, but are useful and good to read. Even the Geneva Bible, 
the first Bible with steady notes, originating under Calvin's ministry in Geneva, Switzerland, retained the Apocrypha, though not as canonical. It was only at the Westminster Assembly in 1643, from which we received the Westminster Confession of Faith, that the Apocrypha was removed. And here's a statement from the Westminster Confession. The books commonly called Apocrypha, not being of divine inspiration, are no part of the canon of the Scripture, and therefore are of no authority in the Church of God, nor to be any otherwise approved and made use of than other human writings. That's a little bit surprising. We might ask, why did it take so long for the Apocrypha to be removed from the rest of the Scriptures? Perhaps it was just tradition. Perhaps it was because people didn't want to rock the boat, be guilty of taking out something from the collection that they shouldn't have. Or perhaps it's because people really did find them helpful as additional histories and writings related to the Scriptures. But certainly, there was a danger in including them together with the Bible, especially without any explanatory statement or introduction. What's that danger? Right, associated it. They will think there's no difference between these Bible books and the Apocrypha books. They have the same inspiration. They have the same authority. And indeed, the Roman Catholic and Greek Orthodox churches, after years of traditionally including the non-scriptures with the scriptures, they validated this concern over the Apocrypha when they said the books of the Apocrypha are divinely inspired. They are scripture. And interpreters of these non-inspired books, not, in, not heeding Jerome's own exhortation in the Vulgate, based doctrines on the text of the Apocrypha, including the following from 2 Maccabees. 2 Maccabees 12, 40, uh, 44 and 45. For if he, Judas, were not expecting that those who had fallen would rise again, it would have been superfluous and foolish to pray for the dead. But if he was looking to the splendid reward that is laid up for those who fall asleep in godliness, it was a holy and pious thought. Therefore, he made atonement for the dead, that they might be delivered for, from their sin. These verses are used as justification of for what Roman Catholic doctrine? Purgatory. The things you can do to help the dead reach heaven or a better afterlife. Well, so this Maccabees, you're asking who are the Jews in this context. The book of Maccabees is a history of the Maccabean rebellion and kingdom in the intertestamental period. So it would be one of those persons. I don't know the specific context, but someone in the family of the Maccabees are connected to them. So this is why, if you tell some Catholics, Roman Catholics, that purgatory is not in the Bible, they will be confused and think you foolish, because it is there in the Bible, in the Catholic Bible, because the Roman Catholic Bible includes the Apocrypha as canonical. So, amazingly, Jerome, whom the Roman Catholic Church looks back on as a doctor of the church, one of the primary teachers of the early church, they would nonetheless be condemned by him today for dealing falsely with the Bible. The Bible that he took such pains to recover in their original languages and translate into a language that the people could understand so that those persons could hear about the great God who is. 
Jerome actually condemns the way the Catholic Church has treated the Bible. The Roman Catholic Church has treated the Bible over the years. And one final thought. There is a lesson here for us to learn about Bible translations. Twice in history, we see people clinging too closely to certain Bible translations. First it was with the Septuagint, and then it was with the Vulgate. People who thought these translations were so good, even inspired, that they regarded with suspicion any new, different translation that sought to update the language for the common people or improve and make more accurate the translation. Has this happened any other time? Of course it has, especially with what? The King James Version. Don't get me wrong, the King James Bible is a great translation of the Bible for English speakers. All the English translations of the Bible that exist today are in some way indebted to the King James Bible translation. However, we do not want to make the same mistake that some early Christians and some medieval Christians made when it comes to the Bible and its translation. No translation of the Bible is inspired. No translation is perfect. And they become outdated as languages change. They no longer are the common language of the people. So rather than holding to a particular inspired translation, what should we hold on to when it, when it comes to the Bible and understanding it? Faithfulness to the original languages as much as possible in the translation and comprehensibility in the language in which it is translated. This is the problem with the King James today. If you understand it and can be edified by it, great, but a lot of people can't understand the language of the King James, or at least not fully. So it's not the best Bible translation to use. Languages change. We should not expect a good translation or even what we consider the best translation to be the best forever. So, I don't know about you, maybe you have a favorite Bible translation. Maybe it's the New American Standard, English Standard Version, Legacy Standard Bible, or the King James. Or maybe certain years of those translations. You've got to understand that there probably come, there will come a time, maybe there already is a time when that translation is not the best. But don't fear that happening. This is normal. This is not the end of the world. This is just what Christians will have to do. We will need to update our Bible translations. Not for the sake of accommodating worldly ideas, but as maybe more manuscripts get discovered or just as our languages change and need to be updated, we will have much benefit, even eternal benefit, from updating our Bible translations. That's all I had for this week. Have a few minutes. Comment or question? Yeah, Mark. So I was thinking about what you were saying in terms of like postmodernism, but I'm kind of formulating this question as I'm speaking, where words are having less and less meaning, hmm. right, in our society. Certainly we don't want to accommodate that. I think about that and I think about King James Bible differently on the English language. Hmm. Yeah, so um, I think that's a big question, and I'm not sure totally how to answer it right now. Um, your observation, though, that postmodern ideas can affect the society's language 
And that language can then be reflected in a new Bible translation. And there certainly needs to be a limitation to how much we accommodate the language of a culture. This has had been a problem in some recent updated translations, I think, of the NIV and even, I think, the New American Standard, the, the newest version. In the NIV, if I remember correctly, pronouns that originally say he are translated to they because that's the way that people speak. Well, I get what they're trying to do. That is actually obscuring the meaning of the original text because you're taking a singular term and you're making it into a plural term. So you can't just say, hey, you know, we're just trying to update it for the common people, uh, the language that they speak. Well, we also want to reflect what the original text actually says. Now, it's always going to be a little bit of a challenge for a Bible translator because you say, well, this is what it says originally, but we don't speak that way today. How can I reflect that in the language in which I'm translating it to? It's always a, a push and pull between faithfulness, literal translation, and comprehensibility in the translated language. But we can't go too far to the side of comprehensibility to the point of uh, actually altering or obscuring the biblical text. So that's the maybe best comment I can give right now. Uh, Glenda. That's a good question. Some would say, even as you do, Glenda, that the King James Bible is better in certain ways when it comes to memorization or um, maybe for prayer or things like that. And maybe because the language is a little bit different, it stands out more in our minds. I think you're also correct to say the King James has had such a long time to impact our culture that certain verses or phrases from the King James are well known, and so they're much easier to remember. Um, so that may be true. Yeah, I guess that's all I could say. <laughs> if you have other questions, come talk with me afterwards. Um, thankfully, I actually ended before 10 today, but I better pray and make sure that we're done before 10. Let me pray. <clears throat> oh, I should say, next week, Augustine and Ambrose. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have it in a good translation. But God, we don't want to uphold, hold on to any translation too tightly. Thank you that you do preserve your word. Your word, people fade like grass of the field, but your word stands forever. Lord, we thank you for the faithful preachers and those who came before us to uphold your word, for Athanasius, for John Chrysostom, and even Jerome in his own way. But Lord, help us not to make the mistakes that they did. Lord, help us to be faithful where they were faithful and to give you thanks for how you use them and how you use us. We are imperfect just like they were, but you still use us to pass on the truth, and reach a world that is yet wrapped in darkness. I pray, God, that you would use us to save others and to disciple one another so that we grow into the image of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Skip.
Thank you. 